I'm sorry. I don't generally like to do that. But uh, I know who you're looking for. She'll be here soon, I believe. Anyways, um, uh, I was going to say, oh, the Fireman's Appreciation Banquet. This, uh, we, we just barely got the, um, the confirmation. They, they had been trying to get the confirmation to us sooner, but uh, apparently it just didn't, uh, didn't come with, uh, with a whole lot of time and a whole lot of warning. But uh, we do have it, and it's usually the Wednesday before, a week before um, Thanksgiving. So <clears throat> this year it is uh, whatever date it was that Ken had just mentioned, the 17th. Thank you, Ken. And uh, yeah, we're going to be um, we're going to be recognizing our firefighters. We'd like to recognize them. Last year we couldn't because of COVID. So what we did is we bought some gift cards and we just took to them uh, the gift cards that they can order at some of the restaurants in the area, and they were really appreciated over that because it was sufficient. It was sufficient that some some because they only have like three or four people in, at the station seven, and uh, they were able to take one, and the next group came out, they took another, and so it really helped them out. Uh, and, and this year, I, I'm not really too sure how exactly we're going to do it. We haven't had a whole lot of uh, response or participation. Part of it is, you know, again, the confirmation of the date. But um, if you'd like to participate, we really need to know because we need a full course meal. Uh, we, need, we need all the trimmings, a turkey, the stuffing, well, everything else that you can think of. And, uh, and if you'd like to participate, let us know so we can put you down on the list and, and give you an idea of what it is that we need. Um, and also what they do is they come out, and I'm not really too sure if Ken explained it all, but they come out, they bring the fire truck, they set it out back, and the kids can get up there, and they jump on it, and they put on the helmets and talk through the microphones, and they give them a little tour to the whole thing. So they're willing to come out and do that, not only just to be appreciated, uh, they want to also be a service to the community. So this is what uh, we, are, we are anticipating on doing. So for those of you online that are listening and you'd like to participate, get in touch with us. For those of you that are here, and uh, I, I'm hoping that we can get a lot of participation. And, uh, and if we can't, well, uh, you know, we'll have to just do something like we did last year. But uh, well, that'll be up to you, okay? And uh, another thing, I don't know if you heard about the Christmas party, again, that we tried to do last year. We, have, uh, we had a fire, uh, excuse me, not a fire truck. Uh, they won't let us use the fire truck. <laughs> I've already asked. They said no. We have a train, that, a little train that we ride the kids around the parking lot. And so you bring your kids, throw them on the train, and we'll, we'll, they'll take them around the parking lot and through the, up, up there where we had finished. And we'll have a, a Christmas party outdoors, a message, a simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ on the invasion of Jesus Christ onto this planet. And, uh, and we'll have a, a good time of fellowship. The following Saturday will be Christmas, uh, December 25th. So, but uh, get, get the word out. We're going to get some flyers out for you guys as well on that. Okay. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We have a uh, few people that are, are missing today uh, that need a prayer. And uh, if, you ha- if you can think of anyone else, that just raise up your hand. I'd like to lift up uh, that person in prayer. Anybody would like to go to the Lord in prayer? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, for okay. We'll continue playing, praying for winter. You want to pray for Jan? Yes. Okay, thank you. You're okay. Yes. Hi, Nadine. Pray for Nadine. For oh, court. Okay. We'll pray for all things to work out together uh, for you and your family. Yes, sir. Kelly. Kelly. All right. Okay, and Sister Terry, that's not here, and and Joan and. Keep praying for them as well. well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you once again for bringing us this morning to dive into your word as we read this portion of Ephesians chapter 4. 
And Lord, we, we barely touched on it last week, and I, I get the sense that we're barely going to touch on it again this week. But I pray, Father, that you lead us as far as you need us for us to go, especially to learn about these, uh, this worthy walk that uh, we have been called to do because we call ourselves believers, because we call ourselves Christians, because we call ourselves your children, because Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price for our salvation. There is a calling upon our life to walk this worthy walk. And so, Lord, this morning, as you start working within our hearts and the things that we need to let go of and, and the things that we need to latch on to and hold on to fervently, knowing that you're going to work all things together for good, I pray that you help us this morning, not just to leave here with information, but a transformed life that we can cling on to and, and move forward until the day that you return. And Lord, this morning we notice that visibly on those that are missing and those that have been uh, hurting in the, in the past few weeks and even months. And, and for those that are, are shut-ins, and I pray and lift up to you, uh, Manny and Lucy, and I continue to pray for Lucy's recovery. And for uh, also Marcella and for Ralph and, and uh, the liver transplant that he's had and, and gotten how you've uh, just blessed him with a, a new lease on life that he uses it to glorify you. We lift up to you, Joan, as well, and, and how you're working in her life and how you've healed her. And I know, Lord, that, uh, that you have a purpose and a plan for her as well. And I pray, God, that you just continue to walk with her and as you, as you show her who you are through your word and through these messages and the studies that she goes through. We lift up to you, Terry, as well, and her family. And God, I just thank you that that portion of her life, um, the, the pacemaker that was placed in her heart, that it just it, it came right on time, Lord. It came right on time for her, and, and uh, you've given her just the, the, the added ability to, to move forward. And I pray for recovery for her as well. And this morning, for those that are here with us, I, I do pray for Kelly. Lord, I know that she has been dealing and struggling with, with health issues for many years. And God, your touching hand, your loving hand upon her and your healing hand upon her that remove this pain and this angst and this anxiety that she has and all the problems that have, that have been caused because of this chemical spill and things that she's dealt with for most of her life. And I thank you for Ken and I pray that you continue to give him patience to minister to his wife and to, to meet the needs that, that Kelly needs, Father. And I, and I lift up to you, Nadine, and just the, the, just the situation she finds herself in today. Lord, I, I, know, I know that you are calling her and, you're, and you have a call upon her life and there's something that you're going to do through this process. So, Father, just help her to, to focus on you, that she is able to understand that you're still sovereign and in control. Nothing's out of control. Nothing's out of your control. And I pray, God, that you just help her and, and continue to be with her father. Uh, we pray for winter as well, and we thank you for her life, and thank you for how you've brought her this far, and just the strength that you've given her just to show up today, Lord. I know it's, it's a huge step forward in what you've been doing in her life. And I thank you, Father, for what you're doing in their family and, and the leadership that James is taking to be able to minister to his family. And, and God, just to strengthen them and keep us going forward. Our church is a church that is designed and to be a, a family-oriented church. It's a church that invites and involves everyone uh, that is willing to submit to your lordship and is willing to, be, uh, to, to, to repent from the things that are holding us back so that we can proclaim who you are. And let your wisdom be known through, throughout all the generations from this point forward. So, Lord, we humble ourselves before you as best as we know how. Humble us at the point that we need to be to receive your word, to receive your direction, and to receive all that you have for us. So lead us this morning through these portions, through these verses of Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue in this book. Thank you for the letter that was written to the people in Ephesus. Thank you for how you brought that all together to, and preserve it just for us, Lord. And Father, even now, before I close, I hear the sirens in the background. I pray for the family member that is receiving that call. 
And I pray, Father, for my neighbor and his family, Lord, uh, for the same call that was, that was uh, yesterday morning. I, I pray that all things work together for good. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen and Amen. All right, let's open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We, we, we touched on verses 1 through um, 3, I think it was. And I'm going to go back a little bit more because there's something here that we have to really just touch on. I, I really ended up going through a lot of a, a lot of review, uh, and only because the way Paul starts this letter, when he says, uh, I therefore, and as I've said many times before, when you see the word therefore, it always points us back to a place where God is showing us something. He's showing us something different. He's showing us something that, that he's not necessarily different, but what he's already showed us and he's already talked to us about. And, and Paul kind of goes off on a tangent and then, he's, then he stops here. And as I said last week, the first three chapters of Ephesians, just like the first few chapters of Romans, just like the first uh, of chapter 12, just like all the other books and, and letters that Paul has written, he always starts off with doctrine. He always starts off with teaching. He always starts off with, this is the doctrinal stance that you must take within the church. In order to be a united church, in order to be a one fellowship church, you have to look at the, the teaching that the apostles had laid out. The people, when they got together at the very first century, they, they listened to the apostles' teaching. They held it, and they, re- they wrote it down, and they moved forward with it. Anytime anybody would come out from the outside, they would always be shut out because, no, this is not what the apostles taught, even though it sounds right, even though it sounds good. Galatians is another prime example. The first three chapters of Galatians is all doctrine, teaching, and then there is a practical application. There's always doctrine before there's duty. In order for us to know what it is that we need to do. We need to know who we are. And and Paul does an excellent job of doing so. He lays it out and here's the doctrine, here's the teaching, and now here's your responsibility. Here's what you need to do. And Paul starts off this letter by saying, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This walk, this, this lifestyle that we are to have, it's not just, you know, walk the church and walk back home, but it's a lifestyle. It's an ongoing process, one foot at a time, one step in front of the other. You don't get there by just going to church and graduating from a Bible study or from a class. Uh, this last Wednesday, somebody asked uh, on, our, on our doctrinal studies that we're going through, fun- Fundamentals of the Faith, they asked, after this book, is there, so, is there something else that we're going to be doing? I says, there's always, some, there's always another book. There's always something more. There should be. There should always be something more. You don't graduate from this class. You don't get a diploma in a sense where you, you've now earned your degree. This is something that is a lifelong process. And the sooner that we can get that, the sooner we can start growing and developing and putting these principles into practice. We are going to go through a very difficult portion of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is asking us and telling us and commanding us and commanding us to put on our spiritual armor, to put on a helmet, a breastplate, to walk around with the sword. Now, Paul is building us up to this point because there is a spiritual warfare going out there. And beloved, if you're not properly prepared, you're going to lose. And this battle is fierce and it's becoming more and more prevalent. So Paul wants to make sure, I want to make sure, I I urge you, as Paul says, I beseech you. And, And Paul goes on, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, 
urge you, I, I beg of you, I, I, I want you to know this with all my heart, to understand this and grasp it, not just to listen to it today and take it with you. We need to put it into practice. Walk. Put it into practice. I need you to walk this way. I need, because this is the only way that we're going to be able to, to, to make it through this world. Otherwise, we're just going to follow every voice that is out there. When Paul talked to the people in, in Rome, he talked to them. He says, you know, your righteousness is not going to save you. As a matter of fact, your religion is not going to save you. And we already know that the unrighteous aren't going to make it into heaven. Nothing can get you into heaven because there is no one good, Paul says in Romans 3. No one is righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Now, the people in Rome, they believed by their good works, by their religiosity, by their church going, everything that was going on with them, they had a connection with God. And Paul says, no. And then in chapter 12, he says, therefore, again, there's that word, therefore, after all this teaching that I've taught you, therefore, uh, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And so here's the practice. Here's what we have to do. We have to take ourselves away, put ourselves aside, because everything that we try to do, going to church, reading our Bible, as good as those are, they cannot save you. You see, those practices, they lift you up, they encourage you, they build you up, and they get you ready for the next step. Because, beloved, there's a lot of stuff going on out there in your life right now. You are going through a lot of turmoil just in your life. And this is not even talking about what's going on in the city, what's going on in the state, what's going on in this nation, what's going on in this world. And as it closes in, the one thing that I come to find out, the older I get, the more and more people that I know are passing away. And, and that is happening in my life. That is happening in your life. And beloved, if you don't have a solid rock on which to stand on, you're going to crumble and fall. And this is why we looked to Jesus Christ. Paul says, I therefore, I urge you, I beg of you. Romans, he's telling the same thing. Here's the doctrine. Galatians, they were trying to bring in the outside source of, of uh, you know, being circumcised. Okay, that's great. Your Christian's good, but you got to be, you have to be uh, Jews as well. I almost said another word. Uh, you have to be Jews as well. You have to be Jewish. You have to go through the customs. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the traditions of the fathers. And Paul says, don't ever let another gospel come in. It's Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And that's it. You don't get saved by all these other things. And, and, and so we talked about just the outside sources that are out there. This is why doctrine is important. I've said this before. People say, you know, we don't need doctrine. All we need is the Bible. That's all. Just, just the Bible. My response is, well, which Bible? Well, you know, the Bible Bible. You mean the Bible of the Jehovah's Witnesses? Where they say that uh, Jesus Christ is really just a good teacher? Or maybe you mean the, the Bible of the, the Muslims, where they say that, that uh, Jesus was just a prophet like Muhammad, but God, Allah is their father. Or maybe you mean the Bible of the Mormons, where they say that Jesus and Satan are brothers. Which Bible are you talking about? Well, not those Bibles. Exactly. This is why you need to know which Bible to listen to, which word to hear, how it is that it's going across. In the, in the book of 1 John, as we started to get into the men's Bible study, the men's Bible study, they're dealing with, in, excuse me, in 1 John, they're dealing with what was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was saying basically that, well, being a Gnostic or Gnosticism is, is basically saying that everything that you can see, feel, and touch, and everything that's matter is insignificant. And so therefore, it doesn't matter what it is that you, who you are, what you are. And, and Jesus Christ could not have come in the flesh. 
He was only a spiritual being. And because Jesus Christ could not come in the flesh, because the flesh is evil, and Jesus Christ couldn't be flesh. And so they said, we know this because, well, we have this revelation coming to us from an outside source. We have this special uh, insight to God's wisdom. And the more that that insight gets connected to God, the more spiritual you become. And therefore, you are at the top of your game. And it's a matter of being a Gnostic. In other words, knowledge, this wisdom, this wisdom, that special wisdom that only comes from God. And if you read the book of 1 John, over 40 times he says, no, I want you to know that you were saved. I want you to know because they don't know. I want you to know. I want you to know. I want you to know. That's the one word that keeps coming out in these four chapters. Over 40 times Paul says, I mean, John says, no, I want you to know. I want you to know. So that you can know, because when you know, then you'll know that you're saved. And this knowledge that people think they have and this special connection that they believe they have with, with God. And, 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 and Paul, John is, is pushing that aside. Once again, doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And doctrine, what it does is it unites. It, it, it defines who we are. Because ultimately, at the end of this portion of Scripture... Paul is talking about the unity of the church, how we can be one, how we can be together. And it's difficult to become one when we have all these various different views that come in from all sorts of different walks of life. What does the Bible say? How does the Bible present that? What is the Bible talking about this? You need to know your Bible. And so therefore, by the way, I've picked up a couple of Spanish Bibles that I'm going to start preaching in Spanish. For those of you that would like to have one, just let me know. Uh, we, have, we have some with, with footnotes and, and, and all. Anyways, going back, to, going back to Paul in Ephesus. Paul, Paul does this, and, and I can go through all the books that, that he has written. He talks doctrine, and then he says, here's your duty. We'll see that in Philippians as we go next. We'll see that in Colossians. We'll see that as we go along to the next few uh, books. Remember, Paul was in prison. I, a prisoner, he says, I urge you. Yeah, I, I'm beseeching you. I, I, am, I am just with all that I have. All that I have, I want you to do this. I want you to walk worthy. This worthy walk that Paul has in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, if you want to turn your Bible uh, there to Philippians. We'll also have them up here, in the, uh, up here so you can read them. It says, only, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, is that you are under the wrath of God. That God's wrath is upon sinful man. Well, I'm not that bad. Have you ever told the lie? Well, maybe once or twice. Okay, now you're lying because I know you've told more than that. You know, oh, I thought you meant just today. Uh, I mean, yes, okay, that makes you a liar. Have you ever had, you know, uh, thoughts that were just not right? Yeah, well, that, you know, towards a person of the opposite sex or just, just unclean thoughts. Well, that makes you an adulterer. Have you ever been mad at somebody? That makes you a murderer. And the Bible says if you use the Lord's name in vain, that makes you a blasphemer. And just right there in those four commandments, I have been a liar, a murderer, an adulterer, and a blasphemer. And that person will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I am a sinner. And so when, when God's wrath is upon my life, I, I sensed it. I knew it. I run from God. I hide from God. I want nothing to do with God because God's wrath is on me. And I know that he is going to come one day and distribute that wrath. That wrath is going to come upon my life. And as the apostle Peter, as he's preaching this first sermon at Pentecost, it is cutting the hearts of the people. 
And they gave the altar call and they said, what must we do? Peter says, well, repent. He didn't ask them to raise a hand. He didn't ask them to say special prayer. He says, repent. Stop what you're doing and go the other direction. Follow the apostles' teaching. Follow what the Bible teaches. Repent. And therefore, this gospel of Jesus Christ that is being proclaimed to you right now, that is being shared with you, you are a sinner and you are under the wrath of God and you need a Savior to save you from God himself. Because he is the one that is going to distribute this wrath. And he's holy and he's just. And this just wrath, this holy wrath is perfect. And it's, it makes no sense to us. How could a loving God do that? Because in order for his love to be pure, his justice has to be pure as well. It has to be pure. And God does not make mistakes. And he says, I'm going to, this is why Jesus Christ died on the cross. Not as an afterthought. He wants for you to understand this gospel. That's why we are called, we are challenged, we are begged, and we are told to walk this worthy walk. He goes on to say, uh, much later, uh, we'll probably read this, yeah, we will, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, and, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, we, we saw this when we walked through this portion of Scripture, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of Him, to know who He is, to understand what it is. And in 2 Peter 3, 18, one of my favorite verses, and I'll probably put this on some birthday cards, two, uh, 2 Peter three eighteen says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And as we have gone through these scriptures and we, we looked at these things that God has in store for us, He's given you, He's blessed you with all the heavenly riches that you have. You, you know, I mean, people sometimes ask me, have you received the second blessing? I go, second blessing, really? You only get two? <laughs> I got them all. Jesus Christ has blessed me with all, every spiritual blessing. He has given me all that I need. And when he gives you all that you need, you need no more. Then why do I pray for patience? I don't know. Why are you praying for strength? Because Jesus Christ says that, that he has given you all the strength. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Why am I praying for peace when he is the peace of God? Why am I praying for patience if he's already given me all that? Then what do I pray for? Well, what you ought to pray for is what James says, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom because wisdom, what wisdom tells you, is that you should stop praying for the things that you already got. And Paul says, this is why you need to exercise this walk. You have every spiritual blessing. When you've committed your life to Christ and you've crossed the line, you live in faith of knowing that you have all the patience, you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You have all the gentleness and you have all the self-control that you need. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Not fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. It's not a bowl of fruit that you can come up and choose. Okay, I need patience today, Lord. Can I take two, please? You have that in you. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, when he has converted you, when he has changed you, when you have been regenerated. 
And so we go on to say that, that Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, urged you to walk in this manner. I urge you, barakaleo, it's, it's, a, it's a strong calling to come alongside and, and to, to be a part of what Paul has called you to do I mean, and God's called us to do. So I, I want to go on to the first point of our outline because I'm going to get sidetracked again. But the characteristics of the worthy walk. He says, therefore, I urge you to walk this way. And here's what he says. You have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray again. Father, thank you once again for this word. Thank you for what you do in our life. Father, we know that we have been called to walk this way. And you will not ask us to do something that we cannot do, that you have not already empowered us. To do. So, Father, I just pray that you lead us this morning to walk that worthy walk in Jesus' name. Amen. A worthy walk. A worthy walk is dependent on humility. Humility, characteristics of humility, is the foundation form. It's a progression. It's something that you build on. You start with humility, gentleness, and it moves on to the next. Humility is a compound word. As a matter of fact, in the Greeks and the Romans, they had no word for humility. As a matter of fact, the Greeks, they borrowed it from the Christians to be able to make fun of the Christians. Those guys are just humility. They're humbled. Typonophrones. Typonophrones was the word compound put together to say humility, humbled. In other words, weak and and. Uh, without any kind of courage, any backbone. And this is how they viewed the Christians. As a matter of fact, if you look at some dictionaries, it'll tell you that humility is without it, people without courage, not being able to, to stand up for yourselves because you're too humble, you're too docile, you're not worthy of, of being a man or, or being a, a, a woman or a person that can stand up for themselves. And so the Greeks, when they, when, when they heard Paul say this, we like this word because they had no word. Their word was pride. They had this ability to stand up and say, oh no, look at us. Look what I did. Look what I've accomplished. Look at my children. Look at my family. Look at what I have done. Look at my body. Look at my strength. And in a sense, that's kind of where we live at today. We live in a very prideful world. We live in a world where humility is not really known. And when it is known, it's known in that negative sense, as the Greeks and the Romans have tried to imply and put it upon the Christians. But the Bible says that Jesus himself was humble. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, and this is in your outlines, verses 7 and 8, it says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. You see, humility is willing to take whatever it, ta- it takes to be able to, to submit to God, to take it all. It's, it's, it's something that you, you, you strive to do as a Christian believer, but the problem is, is that the moment you get it or the moment you think you've got it, you can stand and say, oh, okay, now I'm humble. Oh, you've lost it because now you're focusing on, and Ken stands up and says, yeah, that's me. no. <laughs> And we stand up and we say, yes, now I've got it. But in essence, you've lost it. It's elusive. In other words, you can't really get there. And so humility can't be measured in a sense except in your own life. And you know, and you know when humility hits you. And and I was kind of, you know, last week as I was preparing this message, I kind of kiddingly around, I told my wife, yeah, you know what, babe? I just realized something. She goes, what? She goes, I'm probably one of the most humble men in, in, in all this area. In my family, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm going to write a book on it. (laughs) She goes, shut up. 
she uses wise words. Uh, and, and, and humility is not something that you can grasp and say, I got it. Because the moment you say you got it, you've lost it. But yet Paul is asking us to do this. The only person that can do that, the only person that can say they had it was Jesus Christ himself. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, look at this with me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, I am humble. I am gentle. I am lowly. This lowliness, this, this ability to, to find yourself lower than everybody else. I can't remember exactly who it was that I read this last week. That, that you know, when you get to the point where you're laid out on the floor, there's nowhere else to go. There's no further place to go. And so whatever anybody throws upon you, it's just bouncing right off. And, and so it became, it came, he came, Jesus Christ, we're going to be celebrating this here soon about his coming to this earth, living in a stable of no means, of nothing. He was poor. And 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. And his lifestyle, his walk was a life of humility. And humility, even though it's at the heart of the Christian character, character, there's no virtue more foreign to the world's way. That's the one thing that the world does not want anything of. And it's difficult to preach humility to men, to people of pride, people of arrogance, of people that want to do their best. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do your best. You should do your best all for the glory of God. And and, and I have to remember that every time that I stand up and I bring a message, somebody says to me, comes up and says, you know, that was a good message. I I always want to bring it back. Well, (laughs) glory to God for that. You know, thank the Lord for that because it's not me. I am probably my worst enemy when it comes to being prideful. I, I believe that a lot of what God has taught me these past few years, now in all my, my years as I've advanced in age, I, I start to realize a lot of it was just show. A lot of it was just God is knocking that stuff away from me. And I, and I pray and I ask God, Lord, take me to a place where I, I can be used by you. Until then, God says, well, you have to remove yourself. And I, I, well, I, I can't seem to do so. And it's been a struggle for me in my past. And and as I've learned how to put myself aside and put others ahead of myself, it's very difficult because there's things that I like to do. There's things that I like to show off. There's things that I want to see happen. There's the the I, I, I will, I will, I will do these things. And you know, every time I say that, you know who that reminds me of? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14, if you will, please. In Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah is right after the book of Psalms, uh, Proverbs, of course, and Song of Ecclesiastes. But in Isaiah chapter 14, it says this. And in, in Isaiah 14, this is actually the first sin that you hear in the Bible. And this is the sin of pride. And this is called I've written it on the top of my Bible, the five self-centered I wills. And God is talking to the, the day star, the son of dawn, interpreted into, into, into the biblical language. That sun star, that sun, the, dawn, the son of dawn is Lucifer. And he says, how you have fallen from heaven. I'm reading out of verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to shoal to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? Is this him? And you know, this is very ironic. We, we are, people are afraid of this Lucifer, this devil, this demon. And yet, when you understand that he was just a self centered being wanting to be more than God. God cast him to the ground and we can look at him and say, that's the guy that everybody's afraid of. That guy, you know, you deserve what you get. Satan is a deceiving, lying, conniving enemy. This is why Paul is telling us to get rid of that pridefulness because when you start thinking that you can do this on your own because you know what's best and you have the best plan and you and you and I and I and I yeah 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 what ends up happening is we become more like Satan than we do God you see humility needs to be at the heart of every Christian needs to be at the heart of every believer Humility needs to be there. Look at these verses with me in Proverbs chapter 11, and I think they will come up on the screen. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The Bible says in James that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Some people in their life, some in your life, you seem like everything's coming up against you. You've got all this opposition coming up against you, whether it's in your family, whether it's at work, whether it's in the city, whatever the case may be. It seems like everybody is coming up against me. And what God says is God opposes the proud. Check your pride. Check your pride. Because God gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. You want God's grace? Learn how to walk in humility. Look at the next verse of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In other words, before everything falls apart, it's because of pride and pride is just heaping up all this opposition from God, especially, especially if you call yourself a believer. You're a believer? Then act like one, Paul says. Walk like a believer. This is the requirement. I need you for you to walk this way. I need for you to talk this way. I need you, your life to be centered on Jesus Christ and walk in the pattern that he set. Look at Proverbs 21, verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked are sin. And Isaiah 2, verse 11 the haughty, look of, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Jeremiah 50, verse 31 and 32. Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the Lord God of hosts. Don't you know this? That God hates pride. He hates prideful people. Why? Because that is the Father's the father of pride, the father of lies, the father of this fallen world's first original sin that he has laid out for all of us to follow. God hates pride. 
He says, I declare this. I'm against you. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The proud one shall stumble and fall, and none to raise him up. And I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all that is around him. Malachi chapter 4 says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. You see, Jesus Christ lifts up and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The, the word to, to the, the humble is a broken spirit, is a lowered spirit. It's as far down as you can go. And Jesus Christ is saying, you're blessed when you're low, when you think less of yourself and more of others. Not that you're thinking of yourself less, but when you think of yourself less of more than what you really are. Once again, in James chapter four, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Number two. Let's well, You know what? Let me let me just do this real quick. This is not in your outlines. Humility. How, how do I get that? How do I how do I understand it? How do I see it? Well, first of all, and you might want to write this down. Humility begins with proper self-awareness. Humility begins with proper self-awareness. We have to look at ourselves and realize I'm nothing. You know, to, to say that you're valuable, to say that you have no worth or your, your self-worth doesn't matter or, you know, that you, you're, you're thinking of yourself less. To say that, that, you know, that you are the most important person in the room or, or that God chose you because you're the, the, the apple of his eye or, or because you are the one that God died for because you're the only one. To put myself in that place is, is not looking at myself in the proper self-awareness. The Bible says that I'm dust. The Bible says that I'm, uh, I'm mud. The Bible says that, that I'm nothing. The Bible says that I, I am sinful, that I, I don't search after God. I don't look for God. The Bible says that I was an, an, an enemy of God. The Bible says, and I, my self-awareness, this is what I need to understand, that my self-awareness has nothing to do with, with who I am, but all has to do with who Jesus Christ is. And I'll touch on that here in just a little bit. Look at 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we're sinners. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's the difference between a, a regenerated person and an unregenerated person? What's the difference between those that are uh, reprobates or regenerates? Well, a regenerated person will confess his sin. Father, I've sinned again. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Always repenting and always asking for forgiveness and staying away from that sin and moving on forward. But see, a reprobate would say, yeah, no big deal. You know, God understands who I am. He knows that I'm a work in progress. I don't have to repent. I saw a documentary of a guy that was uh, on, on, they were asking him, well, don't you ever ask for forgiveness? No, I don't have to ask for forgiveness. What I do is I live in a way that I don't make mistakes to where I have to ask for forgiveness. If I live that way, I'm okay. One guy said, I am so full of God that I walk in holiness. One guy was saying that I do this and I can walk and never sin. I hate to be that guy. And when the Bible says, we've all said, if you say you're not a sinner, Second, humility involves Christ awareness. Humility involves self-awareness. I realize, you know, I am nothing. 
I'm nothing. I, I'm God saved me just because of his grace, his love. He saved me because of who he is, not because of who I am. And Christ's awareness, he is the only standard by which righteousness can't be judged. Can be judged. I didn't mean to say can't. Can be judged. In other words, I can't measure myself against anybody else in this area. Because when I try to measure myself against somebody else, I always go for the person that's doing less than I am. Well, at least I'm better than that guy. You know, at least I'm better than that, that person. You know, okay, we, you know, we may not be a, we may not be a mega church, but hey, we may, at least we're not like that church. You, you know, and, and so we measure ourselves not upon ourselves, but humility involves Christ awareness. And it's by his stripes that we're healed. And we always ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And when I don't walk in the same way as he walked, I fail. I fall short of the glory of God. And you know what God said about Jesus Christ in Matthew 3.17? He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's my son. And the third thing, humility involves God awareness. And as we study his life, Jesus' life in the Gospels, we come to see that Jesus was more and more in human perfection. His perfect humility, his perfect submission to the Father, his perfect love, his perfect compassion, his perfect wisdom. And beyond his perfectness, we also come to see his divine perfection. He was both man and God. He was perfectly man and he was perfectly God. And because he was perfectly God, he can be perfectly man. And because he could live without sin, he had to be a man to have no sin. Number one, he had to be a man so he can understand who we are. The Bible says he was tempted in every way as you and I are, but did not sin. And so we look at humility in, in, in self-awareness, Christ-awareness, and in God-awareness. And then, therefore, we can say that, you know what? I, I'm nothing, but Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And therefore, I am part of the family of God, all because of what he's done, not because of what I've done. And it gives us a different perspective. It causes us to be even more humble, to realize, I, I don't deserve this. I know me. I don't deserve any of this. Yet, he chose me. Now let that sink in for a little bit. That ought to blow your mind. Well, you don't know who I was before. <laughs> he chose me. <laughs> but you know you. And that ought to blow your mind as well. Number two. A worthy walk demonstrates gentleness. A worthy walk demonstrates gentleness. Going back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness. Humility has nowhere else to go but to the next level, which is gentleness. You can't have gentleness without humility. Gentleness is always known as uh, meekness. Gentleness and meekness are the same thing. Humility always produces gentleness or meekness. And meekness is one of the uh, surest signs of humility. Meekness and humility go hand in hand. And you cannot possess meekness with pride uh, because pride and humility are mutually exclusive. You're not, you cannot be arrogant and boastful and prideful and be gentle and hum- humble and, and being able to be used by the Lord. And so pride and meekness or gentleness go hand in hand. And the, the dictionary defines meekness in so many different terms as timid or deficient in, in courage. But the, the Greek word is prautos. Prautos translated here gentleness or uh, our word for meekness. And, and there's something to be said about meekness. Meekness is, is that strength that is under control. Meekness is what the lion has been, been dealt with or has been given 
when he is under the control of a trainer. A lion can roar, a lion can tread the trainer to pieces. And you've probably heard or seen that happen in the past. But when a lion is under con- the control of a trainer, he is, he is gentle. You can even go up to him and, and pet him and, and put your head in his mouth. I don't know why people do that, but you can do that. Because his strength is under control. This majestic being, this huge mane, this power, these claws, all that he has. In the, in the, it, meekness is also used in describing a wild stallion. You'll see a stallion just running in the wild and just going at full bore, you know, as fast as he could. And, and how majestic it looks and its mane in the, the background and its tail just flowing in the wind. And, and when it is caught, it, it does not want to be tamed. It does not want to be caught and, and it does not want to be under control. A tamer has to get this animal, this beast, and control this horse. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been to a farm. Have you ever been to a farm? Have you ever seen a horse? Okay, yeah. Uh, how about the? Do any of you guys know Old McDonald's had a farm? Okay, okay, good. I just want to make sure I got some of you with me. A horse is huge. You know, the back of the horse is probably about this high. For some people, you need a step to get up on top of it. And those of you that raise your hand, you probably seen it. You probably even rode one. And those horses are so powerful. I remember one year when I took my daughter, Militia. This is when she was able to get around a little bit more. And uh, you know, we. Uh, uh, we were, we, I took her out for her birthday to ride on a horse, and she just loved it. They gave her a really docile, meek horse, and it was a really nice horse. And, and it was big, and it was huge, and she got up there, and I was on mine, and, and we were just you know, trotting around. And, and so therefore, I dropped the water bottle or something, and so what I did is I, I, I tied her rein on a branch. And, and then, I, I, of course, I tied mine on a branch as well, and I got off my horse, and then I got, I got back on, and then so she says, okay, it's time to go. She started pulling on the rein, and when she pulled on it, an extra hard pull, it hit the horse in the back, and this horse takes off. Like, whoa, come back here, and she's just laughing, and the faster I go, the faster it goes, and, you know, I just, oh my God, she's gonna, it's going to kill her, and finally I <laughs> caught up to her, you know, but it, it just took off. And the good thing was, and the one thing is, that this horse thought, I thought you wanted to go fast. No! The good thing was, is that she was not hurt seriously. She did fall off, but she was not hurt seriously. That's how these horses, the power that they have, they can destroy just about anything around them as they go up on their haunches and their hooves come down and, and they can kill and destroy anything around them. The picture I'm trying to show here is not any meekness, is any cowardness, is not any weakness. It is your power under the control of the trainer. Your power under the control of God. Meekness is the one thing that this church needs, every church needs. Matthew 5.5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Gentleness or meekness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's part of what you already received. Matthew 26, 53 says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He could, he could have had all these angels. A legion was about three to 6,000 soldiers in the Roman Empire, in the Roman army. You know, when you think about these 12 legions, anywhere from 30,000 to 70, 75,000. He could have called. 
He could have called them, but his power was under control. And if you want to know what one angel can do, just go back to uh, 1 Samuel, and you'll find that one angel killed at least 120,000 people. One angel alone. Can you imagine what 12 legions can do? But what God did, what Jesus did, he says, I'm going to keep my power under control. Because in Proverbs 16.32, it says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit has, then, then, uh, has more. Okay, let me start that all over again. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. In other words, there are people that just want to shoot off steam and let their power get out of control. And God is saying, you know, it's better for him to just hold it. It's better than anyone taking a city. And so we walk in a manner of humility. We walk in a manner of gentleness. Number three, a worthy walk develops patience. Macrothemia. Macrothemia is the uh, long suffering. Macrothemia is the, you know, I don't want my anger to get out of control. Macrothemia is the word that is used to say, you know, he is a patient man. You are a patient man. You're a patient person. You have it. You have it. But what you need to do is you need to, we need to develop it. To develop it like Abraham did. See, Abraham was promised. He was promised a family. As a matter of fact, his name was Abram. Abram meant exalted father. God says, you're going to have children. But Abraham says, you know, I'm 90 years old. How am I going to have children? Well, I promise you that you're going to have children. And you're going to have more children than you can count the stars. If you can count the stars, that's how many kids you're going to have. If you can count the grains of sand on all the beaches, that's how many kids you're going to have. And Abraham says, but I'm almost 100. And my wife, you know, she stopped, didn't give me any kids. How, uh, okay, Lord, if you say so, then I'm going to wait on that. And of course, we know that he didn't, but God fulfilled his promise anyways. But his patience, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6, 15, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. There's a promise that God has given you, the promise of everlasting life. There is a promise that each one of us have to be in heaven with Him for all eternity. There is a promise that God has given you, a promise of peace. And if you wait for it, you'll obtain that promise. Now, God may have given you the promise of peace like He gave Jesus Christ. And He had the promise of peace as he went to the cross. And he said, Father, you know, please forgive them. They know not what they do. Paul was given the promise of peace. And what Paul had happened to Paul is he was beheaded in a peaceful manner. He gave his life willingly. Peter was given the promise of peace. And as he was being crucified, he says, you know what? God has given me so much peace that I don't want to be crucified like Jesus was. I want to be crucified upside down. They go, okay, no problem. We'll crucify you upside down because he had the promise of peace. You see, beloved, peace that God has promised you doesn't mean that he's going to take you out of the turmoil that you're in. Peace that God has promised you is that He's going to walk with you and th- with you and through you all these pro- problems that you're going through. He's going to walk with you through those situations. Now, in some cases, He will take you out. He will get you out of that problem. He did so for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the Old Testament, these three would not bow down to the king. 
And they said, oh, king, we will not bow down to you. Even if he throws us in the furnace, because we believe our God's going to save us, even though he may not save us. And even though we don't get redeemed and pulled out of that fire, we're still not going to worship you. And then so the, the king says, throw them in the fire. Throw them in the fire, and there they are walking around. And then a fourth person was in there. The king says, hey, wait a minute. Didn't we throw three guys in there? How come there's four people in there? Make the fire hotter. It got so hot that it killed the people around them. The fire was so intense. And finally, he called out and says, you know what? You guys get out of there. And they got out. Their body and their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. And for some of you, you might get that promise. But the promise I know that he'll give you is the promise of peace. Why? Because it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. You got it. You have it. And there's, there's some things that you're going through right now, beloved. There's some things that you're going through right now because God is doing something in your life. As a matter of fact, in Romans 4.20, it says, No unbelief made him waver, talking about Abraham, covering the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Let's move on to number four. A worthy walk displays forbearing love. Oh, this is a good one. Some of us need this kind of forbearing love. Forbearing love, in the English Standard Version, the Bible that we're using, it says, bearing with one another in love. And the New Living Translation says, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Or the Good News Translation says, show your love by being tolerant with one another. In essence, this forbearing, it forbears, you know, it kind of looks over all my stupidities, <laughs> kind of looks over all my dumb mistakes, all my dumb things that I've said. It just looks over that because you have a genuine agape love for me as I do for you. I look over all the things, you know, you may have burned me. You may have talked bad about me. You may have, you know, whatever the case may be, you, you have people in your life. You have people in your life that have maligned you, that have mistreated you, that have disrespected you, that have seriously, you know, uh, defamed you. I never said that. And, and you want more than anything else to get back. You want this vengeance. You have this vengeance. You have this, this desire to get back and, and, and to lash out on these people. But you know what? Paul says that we need to have this forbearing love. See, when you have humility... And nobody can do anything to you. When you have gentleness, you can approach that person with this power within you. This power within you that you have under control because God himself is your trainer, is your master. When you have this forbearance, when you have these, these principles already, these characteristics of the worthy walk, you're able to bear with one another. Forbearing, you can put up with. You can look at those that are in this world, as, as one person once said, man, God must love stupid people. Why, why do you say that? It was because he sure made a lot of them. That's why you need to have forbearing love. And you know what? I, I think I'm kind of included in that bunch as well. We say some dumb things. We say some stupid things. We do some very stupid, idiotic things. And, and you know, please, if you do... Acknowledge it, recognize it, repent, and don't do it again. Just don't do it again. You know, but when that happens in your life or in someone else's life, you need to look over all those things. Make allowances for being tolerant. Tolerant is one of those words nowadays that it's kind of hard to even try to get out there and describe and to be tolerant. And I'm not saying be tolerant with their sinful behavior. Be tolerant with, you know, who they are as a person but being tolerant as a beloved, as a, lo uh, 
as a brother, as a person that is in your midst, serving Jesus Christ, wanting to grow just like you. First Peter 4, 8, above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Hebrews, excuse me, Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. This is what this love does. It, it's this, this cover, this blanket that covers. And you know what? Yeah, you sinned. You sinned against me. I forgive you. Let's just move on. You know, it's just this is not the place, and, and especially here in the church, to hold on to those kind of grudges. I forgive you. It is done. Let's move on. You see, because we're going to get to, and we're not going to get to it today. We're going to get to point number five. And I've got to say something about point number five right now. Because in the past, there were times that I would, I would say, you know, for the benefit of the unity of the church, I will put up with certain things. I will, okay, not sin, you know, not, not the sinful activity of people's lives. And, you know, but there were certain things that, you know, we sh- I should have and I could have uh, done more. But, you know, I, I would think, you know, let's, let's, just, let's just get everybody together. Let's all just feel good and, and be happy. And, and all at the expense of doctrine. All at the expense of what the Word of God said. You know, God says that we shouldn't be doing that. Well, you know, they're a work in progress. They're, they're coming together and, and they're, they're working hard. And, you know, yeah, maybe they slip up a little bit. And, you know, they're not perfect. And, and you know, and there, was, there was a time that we would just, yeah, come as you are. Come as you are and stay as you are if you want. You know, we, we, as long as you come and you're part of our church, we all sing together and we all clap our hands together and we are happy together, you know, because there were some things that came up and, and sometimes I would, okay, well, you know, just not raise a whole lot of red flags. You know, let's just, let's just keep it down. The problem with that is that, well, eventually people started getting mad at each other and it just didn't work out too well. And we started, you know, a few years ago, 10 years ago, we started going to doctrine, teaching. And doctrine, and, and say, look, this is what the Bible says. Why this message to walk a worthy walk would have been very not well. Well, I don't know. To be honest with you, it's not a message that I might have preached ten years ago. But today, I'm telling you, if Paul is saying this to us, then we need to do this. That is expected of every believer to walk this walk, because as I mentioned earlier. Eventually, it's going to be that swak, it depends on the unity. It's dependent. It, it focuses. It, it flows into the unity. And, and this unity, this unity is more than just, you know, coming to church in one building. There's a doctrinal unity. There's a, a, a relational unity. There's a teaching unity. There's, there's this ability to understand together what the Bible teaches. It's not economical. Uh, economical? Economical. It's not economical where, where we get all the religions together and we all come together and it's okay, it's all right, you know, we can coexist. Because all these different religions that come together, all of them have different ideas and doctrines and philosophies and teachings. And as I started off this morning, Paul, he defended the genuine gospel. He defended the, te- the apostles' teaching. He defended 
what he taught. And he says, this is what you must know. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not my testimony. The gospel is not feeding the hungry. As much as my testimony should matter, as much as the feeding the homeless should uh, be part of what we do, but that's not the gospel message. The gospel message is you have offended a holy God. Jesus Christ died on the place so that you don't have to experience the wrath of God. That's the gospel. The gospel message is that there is a Savior and you need saving. But when I tell people, like once before, it was hard for me to share that with sinful people living in a sinful relationship. We've had people come to church and be here, part of that, those relationships. And they, they were here and we loved on them. And we, oh, sure, come on, it's okay. You know, we're hoping that eventually you know, the gospel message will get to you. And you know, we're, there was never no upfront for, with type of, you got to change. You're living a sinful lifestyle. As a matter of fact, I think one of the things that's happened here just in the past, that we've had people leave and say, you know, that's kind of condemning to say stuff like that. Yeah, um, well, I've gotten older now, and I have, I have not more, much more time. And the Bible very much talks about what it is that we should, how we should walk. And this unity, this unity, you see, when, when we have, when we have, Genuine humility and, and gentleness and forbearing love. When we have those characteristics in our life, when we have that flowing within us, then, then people are drawn to that. They're drawn to the fact that you will love and oversee and, and look over the offenses that may have been caused to you. I, don't know, I no longer look to my self-interest. I look after your interest. And you do the same with each, each other, every other person. And we do this together to become a united church. A united body. Because the message of Jesus Christ has to get out. And the message of Jesus Christ needs to be proclaimed. I want to close with this statement. It's a very negative statement. Uh, the founder of uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Nabor, Nihor, I forget what his full name is. But he says, the church is kind of like Noah's Ark. See, you can put up with the stink within the church because of the storm outside. You think about that. You can put up with the stink within the church because of the storm outside. It shouldn't be like that, beloved. There needs to be a genuine love, forbearing love, gentleness, humility, looking for the best interest of other people. Let me ask you to stand. One of, the, one of the things that I have heard that people have come through here, um, you know, I'm going to pick on Jan she's, since she's not here. <laughs> she says, you know, when I felt really welcomed. I really felt welcomed here. This is why we came back. And she goes, and you know who welcomed us the most and made us feel real welcome? She goes, James. Because you should put him out there more often. <laughs> felt really welcomed. And that's what we want to do. We want to make people feel welcomed because we want you to grow. And I want to urge you, I want to plead with you to walk that worthy walk. I want to be like Paul. If I'm a beggar, then so be it. Paul was a beggar. And, and if he's going to beg, I'm going to beg. And if I can go up and down the aisles just begging you to change, to change your life, to look at what the Word of God says, then so be it. Lord, I, I just want to thank you again for your Word. Thank you for the promises that you give us. Lord, there is this sense of 
understanding that we need a Savior. And I pray for any here today that still have not heard or have not yet committed their life to you. That you open their heart, that you make that transformation right now. That it makes sense in what it is that you're doing. That it makes sense in how it is that you are bringing your people together. Because it is you. It's not my word. It's not my talent. It's not my anything, Lord. It's only you. It's your word, Holy Spirit. That you convict the hearts and you bring them to a saving knowledge of who you are. Thank you once again for your word today. And Lord, we continue to pray for those that are uh, not with us. We pray for the events that are coming. And we pray that your word is proclaimed even louder. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen and amen. Amen.